Hello, hello, you guys. Welcome to the VBAC Link. This is Megan, your host of the VBAC Link. And we have a story for you today that has been something that we've been kind of seeing trickling in our inbox a lot. And so I went out into our VBAC Link community on Facebook and said, hey, I'm looking for some stories with this specific topic. And that specific topic is GBS. So group B strep, if you don't know what GBS means. And that is something that we've been seeing in our inbox being told of people being told they cannot have a vaginal birth if they test positive for GBS, which we all know, I hope through listening to these um, episodes, you know, by now is false. If you are told that you absolutely cannot have a TOLAC, a trial of labor after cesarean because you have group B strep, that is not true. That's just simply not true. And we have our friend Kelsey today from Dallas, well, outside of Dallas, Texas, right? Yes. Is that right? Yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, yes. And she is going to share her story, just proving that. And then another fun twist to her story is that she had a rupture of membranes. So one of the things providers fear more or worry more uh, most about is GBS and rupture of membranes and the longevity of the membranes being ruptured, increasing risks of infection, right? And so a lot of providers will say, if you have GBS the second your water breaks, I mean, TOLAC or not, you need to come in and start antibiotic treatment like immediately. And there are some definite evidence um, with treating with antibiotics. And we're going to talk about some of that in the end and also maybe some ways that you can try and avoid testing positive for GBS. But the one of the crazy things or cool things I should say about Kelsey's story is her labor, her rupture of membranes was like 24 plus hours. And so a lot of the times we have providers also saying, you know, after a certain amount of hours and they, they kind of have a cutoff or a certain amount of doses of antibiotics, you know, we're at high risk for um, the newborn getting GBS and then we need to have a cesarean. And so I'm excited to hear Kelsey talk about her journey with 24 hour plus of rupture of membranes with GBS. And then another twist to her story is when she did arrive, she was a certain centimeter that a lot of people also think can't be helped. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm just going to leave that right there and uh, we'll let Kelsey talk about that. Um, but of course, we have a review of the week, so I want to dive into that. Um, and this was back in 2021, so a couple of years ago, actually, from McKenna underscore one, two, three. And her subject is, you're not alone, mama. It says, when I had my first baby seven months ago via C-section due to placenta previa, I was left discouraged and sad with little to no tools to help me process all that had happened. It was hard for me to tell my story to others confidently and joyfully because I felt so isolated by the experience. Enter the VBAC link. Ooh, that just gave me chills, actually. <laughs> um, I, went, I, I spent my early postpartum months listening to an episode every day while I nursed my newborn. When I came across the a Placenta previous story on the podcast, I felt so seen and understood. This podcast gave me the opportunity to feel bound to other strong mamas who have healed from similar experiences. All of a sudden, I didn't feel so alone. I'm not pregnant with baby number two yet, but when that happens, I will be armed with invaluable tools and knowledge 
for my journey to have a beautiful and redemptive VBAC. Thank you, ladies, for being the voice for moms who feel alone and unseen. Whoa, I yeah, got girl. like, I got chills <laughs> along reading that whole thing. And she is so right. You are not alone. We are here with you. And I know I've said this before, and I'm going to say it a million times before, but here at the VBAC link, we truly love you. I know we don't know you, but we love you and we don't want you to feel alone. That is why we created the VBAC link mm -hmm. because we felt alone. We were in that spot. Julie and I, years and years ago, felt alone, wanting to have this vaginal birth, which seems so normal, right? Vaginal birth just seems like it should be normal. Like that's what happens, right? But then we had these C-sections, unexpected, undesired, and we didn't know where we belonged. We didn't know what we could do. We didn't know who was saying what that was true or not, right? And that is why we're here. That is why the VBAC link exists. So thank you, McKenna, so much. Congratulations on your baby that is now probably <laughs> almost two. <laughs> and we need an update, McKenna. And Can, we like, need an update, yes. McKenna. Have we had, ha are we having another baby? Where are we at? Are you still with us? Let's, let's hear that update. Um, mm -hmm. Definitely email us. And if you haven't had a time to, or a chance to put a review in, we would love that. We love, we love getting them in the email box, on the Apple Podcasts, on Instagram. We love seeing your reviews. I'm not kidding you. When I was reading this review, I would get chills and then they'd go down and then I'd get chills again and then I'd go down. Like they mean so much. So definitely, if you haven't, drop us a review. You are tuned into the VBAC Link podcast with Megan Heaton, who is a longtime doula and VBAC mom herself, here to help you get inspired for birth after having had a C-section. Along with this podcast, the VBAC Link offers blogs, resources, and a comprehensive VBAC course for both parents preparing for birth and doulas wanting to take their VBAC education to the next level. Be sure to follow Megan and her team on all social media platforms for even more. Although these podcast episodes are VBAC specific, it is encouraged for all expectant moms to listen and educate themselves on how to avoid a C-section from the get-go. The purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. It is not meant to replace advice from any other qualified medical professional. Here is your host, Megan. Hey, women of strength, it's Megan. I wanted to share something with you in case you didn't know. In addition to this podcast and all of the amazing stories and information that you will receive, we also have a website. You can find it at thevbacklink.com. That is T-H-E-V-B-A-C link.com. It is full of free resources answering your burning questions on how long to become pregnant, how to induce naturally, can you have a VBAC if you induce, and so many other topics. We also create helpful email content, so don't forget to sign up for the free emails when you see the pop-up come up. I know it's crazy because I've never met you, but I want you to know I truly love you with all my heart. I love this community, and I am so grateful to be on this journey with you. Okay, Kelsey, welcome to hey. the show. Yeah, thanks for having me, for having me on the VBAC podcast. I'm so excited oh to be gosh. here. Oh my gosh. Well, I'm so excited that you are here and sharing, like I said, such a, a great topic because I don't know, tell me what you have heard with GBS. Have you heard that? Like you can't have a vaginal birth with GBS or have you heard oh, anything um, like that? Not from my doctor per se. And, and I'll kind of give you some more info about that as I share my story. But 
I believed that everything had to go according to plan. Despite listening to y'all's episodes, despite hearing other VBAC stories, I just felt like there is no way that I can have this vaginal birth after a cesarean unless everything goes just as it should. And my story is one that should be titled when everything goes wrong. (laughs) Okay. When everything goes wrong. Yes. Yes. So I had definitely heard that. I, one of the things that I kept in mind, and I'll mention this too, is when you have rupture of membranes longer than 24 hours. I mean, I Googled this last night just to be sure. And you'll see all over the place. You've got to get baby out. You've got to get baby out. You've Mm -hmm. got to get baby out. And that just wasn't the case for me. So yeah, I've got a lot of fun to unpack with you. (laughs) And you know, I actually, my water was broken for longer than 24 hours too. And so I like connect so much to that because I hear it so much with our clients, like within 24 hours, if you haven't Mm -hmm. had a baby, like we've got to get baby out. Right. Yeah. And some people are like, oh, within eight to 10 hours, if contractions haven't started, we have to induce. Yeah. You know, but that's not necessarily the case. And we're two people that are living proof of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can I start by giving you just a little rundown of baby number one? Absolutely. I was going to say, let's unpack where it all began. Yeah, for sure. So exactly where it began, right? That's exactly where it began. My son was born via scheduled cesarean in July of 2018 at 40 and two. So I had never felt a contraction prior to having my son. I was diagnosed with polyhydramnios in the latter weeks of that pregnancy, which of course, as you know, leads to increased ultrasounds. Mm -hmm. And the more ultrasounds you have, the more, I don't want to say things can go wrong, but he did get the big baby label, you know, because he was seen so much. And, and of course you guys have shared, like those can be up to two pounds off, you know, either direction. So I remember somewhere along the 36 to 38 week mark, my provider began discussing delivery with me. And she mentioned that she would hate to see me run out the clock on a 24 hour labor, which should have Mm -hmm. been like red flag number one. Uh (laughs) She said that I would be so tired from laboring all day only to have a newborn who would not let me get any rest. She mentioned shoulder dystocia that he would get Mm -hmm. stuck. She pulled out all the stops and Then she even said, and you're going to die whenever I tell you this. She said, I've seen too many things go wrong with vaginal deliveries during my residency. And it's why I chose elective cesareans for the births of my own children. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. She is in the wrong field. (laughs) So, and I don't, I don't want to demonize her. I trust that she was giving me. Probably speaking from her heart. Yes, she was. She was not out to get me. No. And this is a, this is the thing. A lot of the times these providers, they have this bad rap. Like I'm like, Oh dear, red flag, like right. wrong. But and they do take a lot of the times where they have maybe seen, like she, if she's mentioned shoulder dystocia, maybe she's seen a really hard shoulder dystocia. Mm-hmm. So she, so she fears that. Yeah. So she fears that, but she's labeling every other birth that way to the point where she even scheduled her own cesarean because she was that scared of vaginal birth. Right. Right. If you have a provider that's that scared of vaginal birth for herself, then that is a red flag for sure. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we don't we don't even think about that. Yeah. (laughs) And I didn't have the knowledge or the experience to present a case for vaginal delivery for myself, nor did I feel like I had the ability to. And so I walked in and had a scheduled cesarean. It was very routine, very rote. Uh, My son did weigh nine and a half pounds, but 
there I was, a first-time mom. I'd felt like this experience that I had so desired to have, this vaginal birth was snatched right out from under me. And mm-hmm. I had never felt a single contraction. I don't know why that was so important to me, but I just I felt it's like I was missing sig- something. It's a signal to sure. our minds and our you know our brains that our baby is coming. Yeah. It's a sure sign when we start having contractions and experiencing labor that okay, we are now entering this stage, right? Absolutely. Like this, I swear, like, cause same thing, like. I remember the last time I felt a contraction with my second and I was like, sad. Like, I'm like, wait, where did they go? You know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So that feeling really set the stage for the birth of my daughter. She didn't come until about four years later, but I knew that the first weapon in my arsenal would be to find a new provider. I conducted some interviews with, with two providers here in the Dallas Fort Worth area you know, you're, you're, you're part of the Facebook pages like DFWV back and, and you see names just pop up over and over again. And so I chose Dr. Downey, who you guys actually, one of your very first episodes was with a gal named Rachel and she used Dr. Downey for her VBAC. Oh. And I remember there were like 13 months between her cesarean and her first VBAC. Wow. So he's a he. We've got a repeat doctor on here. Um, yeah, that's <laughs> really was, good to know, Doctor Downey. Doctor Downey, yeah, he was amazing. I mean, never batted an eye. He briefly mentioned induction by forty-one weeks due to some health concerns on my end. It was nothing major, but I had a few markers for antiphospholipid antibody syndrome, and mm-hmm. so I don't think I've ever heard of that. It's a blood clotting disorder. Oh, okay. So I was on heparin shots. Lovenox shots and then moved to heparin shots closer to delivery. But he, I mean, he was largely very patient, very, very patient. He, he said, you know, you're going to be getting a call from the hospital to schedule an induction by around 41 weeks. And I kept waiting and waiting and waiting for the call. I hated the waiting. I wanted to decline the induction, but I also, I also, to be honest with you, I wanted to follow my doctor's advice. And so I felt like I was in a really weird place. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, but I never got that phone call. I never got that call to schedule an induction. I never had to make that decision because the hospital was packed and they didn't have room for me and it was not truly medically necessary. And so I left my 40-week appointment with my next appointment scheduled for 41 weeks. And he was like, okay, I guess we're just going to wait for you to go into labor. And I said, great. I love that. So fast forward to my due date. I texted my doula that afternoon update. And about 9.30 PM that evening, to my surprise, I started cramping sporadically. Um, But because I'd never felt a contraction, as I said, I just kept thinking like, is this it? This can't be it. This is it. It has to be. It can't be. What is going on? So I even got out my contraction timer just to see like my... my sense of time was so distorted um, because I was excited, but confused. But, you know, so I got out my contraction timer just to see how long were these cramps, how much time was between them. I didn't expect any regularity, but I did continue to cramp until early morning. I woke my husband up, you know, talk about excitement. That guy, he got showered, packed a bag and fully dressed in like seven minutes. (laughs) Oh my gosh, that's yeah. awesome. So I, I very kindly reminded him that this could take a while. He should probably rest. I was resting as best I could, eating, drinking. 
And at 3.21 a.m. the next morning, I felt that that little pop that everyone mm-hmm. talks about. It, you just don't really <laughs> know until you experience. And I was glad. I, is there such thing as TMI on this show? No. No. Okay. <laughs> so I had had a pad on by that point because I'd had some bloody show. And I was so glad because um, I didn't have this massive gush of water. It was just kind of a leaking. And when I went to the restroom, I noticed that it was not clear. And I think one of the things that I hope people glean from my story is you have to do what you're comfortable with despite risk and statistics and all of the numbers. And so I knew yes, I could stay at home and I could continue to labor, but I just felt more comfortable going to the hospital with the fact that my my waters were not clear. Yeah. And I, I called my doula. I sent her pictures. God bless her. And with my own gut feeling, my husband's urging and her advice, we headed to the hospital about two hours later and we were admitted by 7.30 a.m. that next morning. Yeah. See, and I wanted, I just want to talk about like, Despite what evidence may say, like, oh, yeah, I'm safe to be here, but my heart says I shouldn't. Yeah. Like, that is so important to listen to. We have, when we talk about on the, on the podcast all the time, like, what does your heart say? What does your gut say? You know, but it really, really, really is so important. And I love that you had a doula to kind of validate you and say, like, yeah, that's totally mm-hmm. fine. Like, it's a great idea. You can go on in. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you have to take into account all of your experience and experiences in the past too. What is going on in your life as you're experiencing this labor, as your baby's coming into the world? And it, I, I kind of felt like I was taking a risk by having a VBAC. I know that I, I wasn't necessarily, but that was, that was big enough for me. And so I needed to mitigate the other smaller risks by just going going to the hospital and being in a place where I felt comfortable. Now, that might not be the case for others who are listening and that's okay. But something else that I decided fairly on in my uh, fairly early on in my pregnancy was that I did not want to know how far dilated I was. I didn't want to know baby station. I knew that this was a mental game and so whether I was a centimeter dilated upon admission or 6 centimeters, I just did not want to know. I wanted to do what my body was doing lean into that. My husband was told how far dilated I was. He relayed that info to my doula and then um, until she was present. And then obviously my doctor knew as well. But you mentioned at the beginning of the show, I was a certain centimeter dilated when I was admitted and that was zero. (laughs) Not dilated at all. (laughs) Not dilated at all. Not dilated at all. A lot of the times, a lot of the times with um, people who are wanting to VBAC, if you walk in, with rupture of membranes, nothing's really happening and you're not dilated at all, right? Like this Pitocin doesn't help us dilate as much when we're not like, when not much is happening. I mean, it helps us dilate, but like usually they want it to be something Uh, or do you know, do you remember how effaced you were? Um, I don't remember how effaced I was. I don't even know if I was at all. Effaced. Okay. Um, yeah. See, and then right there would be like a, a provider sometimes might say like, there's no options here. Yeah. And let me tell you, so because I was not having any contractions, I didn't know how dilated I was, but I do remember my labor and delivery nurse saying, because you're not having contractions, Pitocin is really your only option. And my doctor came in right after that and said, 
I don't see why I can't insert a balloon catheter. Like he was the one who was like, wait a minute, I'm the doctor. I'll Uh, make that decision. Let's not let the nurse call the shots. And that's good that they were like willing to give you Pitocin because sometimes we'll have providers say, oh, we'll actually try to give you Pitocin and try and help you a face and open just a little bit to help us get a foliar cook in. Right. Um, but some providers are like, no, no contractions, no dilation, no effacement, like rarely is Pitocin going to help, but it yeah. can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we, we didn't do Pitocin yet. We started with the balloon catheter and can I talk um, about, can you talk about how, unco- can you tell people like how uncomfortable oh, or comfortable it was and oh. how ma- <laughs> how you could get through it? Right. Cause not dilated Absolutely. at all. You're literally putting a catheter through a closed hard cervix. Absolutely. So it was, it was painful. It was painful getting it in, but the real painful part. So, and I'm sure that your listeners know, and you'll, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong, but the catheter is inserted. The, the balloons are inserted. They're pumped with saline to manually begin to dilate the cervix and they fall out by themselves somewhere around like four centimeters. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. Three to four centimeters. Yep. Okay. So putting it in was painful, but the real pain, the real pain came when my nurses would try to put some tension on on the balloon to tug on them to see if they would come out. I, my husband, he will say that looked like it was the most pain that you were in the whole time. Mm. That was so painful. And of course I don't have an epidural at this point. Like I, I'm just, it, I, it's not coming out lady. It's not coming out. Give it a minute. Mm-hmm. So yeah. That was pretty painful. Yeah. And they put, they pull and push, like p- put pressure on it to try and encourage it and see, cause sometimes it will just slip out, but it also sure. um, needs to come down and put pressure on the cervix, but yeah. it's obviously not, not the funnest, but, but you're, could you say manageable, worth it? Oh, absolutely. Say, I would never do it again in my no, life. No, I would, I would absolutely do it again because it, it worked for me. Um, and really only one of the balloons that came out was painful. I got up to use the restroom at about maybe 5 p.m. that night. So it was inserted at 9.30 in the morning. I got up to use the restroom one time at 5. And the second one just popped out like that. I mean, it was mm. it was easy peasy. So I would absolutely do it again. It was not that miserable, but it was certainly not comfortable. Uh, yeah, not pleasant. Yeah, yeah. And I love what my doctor said. So he came in whenever that second balloon fell out. And he said, you're dilated. We know you're dilated to a certain point at least. I would. I was very conservative with cervical checks. I was like, you can check me when I'm admitted. But other than that, I really, I really don't want anyone up there because I knew that increases the risk of infection. And so he said, there's, you know, I'm, I, there's no reason for me to, to check you. We know that you're at a certain point, but now we've got to work to get your contractions to match your dilation, which was such a, an easy way for me to understand what was going on. And you'll have to forgive me because I don't remember when they started the antibiotic drip, but I was diagnosed with GBS, as we mentioned, um, and I did choose to go the antibiotic route just because, and this kind of takes into another point that we talked about earlier. I had a friend whose daughter did contract GBS during delivery and she was very, very sick, hospitalized like the first week after she was born. So I knew statistically the odds were very small for my little one to experience any adverse consequences, mm-hmm. but that was a risk I just didn't want to take. I wanted and to mitigate great. it. And so I, I did have antibiotics. I don't know how much, 
but I did go that route. Yeah. Most people do. Most people do. Yeah. 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 So um, we did begin to work to get contractions to match my dilation. I pumped a little bit. I moved around. We began Pitocin. And this was honestly my favorite part of labor. I would do the hours from 5 p.m. to 10 p.m. when I did get an epidural over and over and over again. I put my headphones in. I got in the zone. I spent a lot of time on the birthing ball and the toilet. And when people say the toilet is a magical place to be when you're in labor, they're not wrong. Seriously, I loved wrong. it too. I loved, I loved it, it so much. It was like this weird way to like put counter pressure, uh-huh. open the pelvis, take off the pressure, but also yeah. at the same time, like get the good pressure, you know, like yes. it, I don't know. I loved and my it doula had set up candles in the bathroom and the lights were turned off. And it was a moment when I was unhooked from the machines. I she had like some essential oils in the toilet. I don't know. It was I never knew that a hospital restroom could be so relaxing, but it was great. I love that. It was so great. So I did work through contractions for about five hours. I was getting so tired by this point. I'd been up for 24 hours without a drop of sleep. I didn't have the same fortitude at that point that I maybe would have had like 12 hours prior. Um, And so I began to no longer work with my contractions. I was just fighting against them. I was yelling no a lot. (laughs) I was yelling no a lot. I was saying things that, I don't know, laboring brings out a whole other individual within a woman, I believe. So at about 10 p.m. that night, Pitocin was up to a five. I was dilated to about seven centimeters and I just epidural, which is something that I didn't necessarily plan on, but I'm so glad that I did. It was a good decision. So um, I love that you say that because I think there's so much shame sometimes about like having this goal and, and desire, but then quote unquote giving up or right. You know what I mean? Which is not giving up, just to let you know. <laughs> but like the epidural can really come in as such an amazing tool. When mm-hmm. you're exhausted, sometimes we're holding so much tension. Yeah. And so getting an epidural actually offers relaxation. And yeah, there are pros and cons to epidurals, but an epidural can be such a great tool. And you should never feel bad or question your decision to change your mind. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is another thing that I learned as I was laboring or really kind of reflecting on the labor and delivery process is, first of all, for the most part, none of your decisions have to be instantaneous. And I remember my doula telling me this. She was like, you have, you can take a minute. You can ask everyone to step out of the room and it just be you. It just be you and your husband you can think through the pros, the cons, the risks, the advantages, the, you know, for whatever decision that you are making, for the most part, you have time. And so mm-hmm. I was always afraid that I would be pressured into, okay, we're in here. You've got to make a decision. What do you want to do? And I wouldn't know what to do. And so I was so glad that there was, there was time and there were options. Yeah. So, yeah. I feel like my epidural was one of those things. I remember asking everyone to leave the room and it was just me and my husband. We were talking through it, but it, it allowed me to rest. I got to sleep a little bit. And because of my doula and nurses, they positioned me just so that baby moved several stations. I dilated to nine centimeters and mm-hmm. I was 80% effaced in a matter of hours. Wow. 
So awesome. Yes, it was great. And I still didn't know how far dilated I was until this point. My doula nurse and husband decided it would be, I mean, they let me make the ultimate decision, but they thought it would be a good idea for me to know that I was nine centimeters because I was, you know, 24 hours into this thing and just kind of discouraged, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. So, Anyway, we were quickly approaching the 24-hour mark since my water broke. And and that was another thing I was starting to freak out. I felt like, okay, because my water is broken and it's been 24 hours, this is going to be an automatic C-section. Yeah. But that was that was not the case. I remember... I mean, my doctor really didn't come see me that much, but he just seemed so unbothered by it. So what you're saying is he didn't even treat you any different. No, no. That's amazing. That's he is amazing. so, uh, he, if you That's are in the DFW area, yeah. <laughs> that is what we want. When you are, you're in your mind like, oh, I've got this, I've got the C-section, I've got this, I've got that. And your provider's like, just acting like you're any other person coming in and having a baby. Yeah. yeah that's awesome. That's yeah. what you want. And that's how my, my nurse was too. I remember telling her, I'm so scared every time you come and take my temperature because I'm afraid uh, I'm going to have spiked have a fever. Yeah. Yes. And she said, she, I remember she put her hands on my knees and she looked me in the eye and she said, even if I come in and you spiked a fever, a C-section is not the only way to get this baby out. She's right there. Mm. She's right there. There are other options. It's going to be okay. Yes. That's and awesome. And so, yeah, we just kept on keeping on. I slept. I kept sleeping a little bit. I rested from about 2 a.m. until 6.15 a.m. when I was complete. And we you know, started doing some practice pushes. But on the first practice one, the baby's head started coming out. So uh, that first practice push. Yes. So my nurse was like, can you hold on a minute? Let me go get the doctor. I'm pretty sure he came from home. And this is probably, this is probably one of those do as I say, not as I do situations. I was so tired of waiting and I was so tired in general. I just started pushing even when contractions weren't necessarily helping me, but that girl came out in like 30 minutes And Mm -hmm. she was born and put in my arms and it was the very best. And I never heard a single like, well, you've got group B strep or your waters have been broken for this long. Or I never, I mean, none of that from my doctor, from nurses, no one. Awesome. They just, they, I feel like they treated me as an individual case because I was, I was not a textbook that they were reading, you know, in nursing school or medical school or anything like that. It was at this moment, how is your baby doing? How are you doing? What are the signs that we have from you know data? All of those kinds of things, experience, I think we're okay to keep going. And so yeah. that's what we did. I love that. I love that. This team sounds really awesome. Oh, they were It'd great. It'd be really cool if we could just like replicate them. I know. <laughs> set them all over the world. I mean, know there are providers just like them for sure. Yeah. But that just sounds so awesome and so non-pressuring, especially when you have all these little factors Mm -hmm. that could really impact a provider's view. Yeah. Oh, it's so awesome. Well, I am so happy for you. Huge congrats. Thank you. Huge congrats. I'm so glad that, you know, along the way you were one, supported, 
two, we're able to follow your heart and feel validated for following your heart. You know, being able to shift gears based off of what you're given. Like, this is so important to know. Like, we plans can change, like things can change. And and you you didn't go with the, the same exact provider, right? And a lot of the times we do. And so that's another little tidbit I'd like to talk about is providers and how important mm-hmm. providers are and can really impact. And and this is even before having a C-section, right? Yeah. Like from the get-go, right? We yeah. have if we have a provider that is really against vaginal birth in the beginning or really prone to induction and pressing and pushing pitocin really hard and then we stress baby out and then we're not doing well and then we have a c-section like we needed to be supported and not pressed from the beginning and so know that if you're feeling these red flags as a first-time mom if you're listening because i know we have first-time moms listening know that if you're feeling weird about a provider that's okay to change at Mm -hmm. any point it's really okay and find a provider like this that just supports you and says okay this is what we've got everything's looking okay here we are let's keep going you know, and really help you guide. I remember there were two things just, I I guess I just want to rave about him. Towards the end of my pregnancy, we were doing, oh gosh, I'm going to, what is it? A non-stress test. We were doing that every appointment because of my blood clotting disorder and just making sure that that baby was doing okay. And my water amniotic fluid level was kind of decreasing. And it was getting pretty close to that line where most doctors would say, Oh, it's getting too close. You got to come in tomorrow. We're going to induce at 39 weeks, you know? And he just said, Oh, we'll check it again next week. Just make sure you drink a lot of water. And then whenever I came in to be admitted, there was meconium because I had that rupture of membranes and Mm -hmm. there was meconium. It wasn't clear. And so I was freaking out. And he said, that's actually pretty normal for full term. We're not going to be worried about it. And I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So the longer term the baby goes, it's, it's common. And I mean, it can happen. It can happen really anytime, but yeah, it's coming. Meconium is more common than I think the world knows. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there, there are so many babies that are born with meconium that the nurses and the staff kind of like pay attention to a little more after birth but have like no complications. Yeah. Yep. That's exactly what happened with us. Yeah. Yeah. So that's important to know. Well, I want to talk a little bit on, on GBS and let's, let's Mm -hmm. talk about the, the actual evidence. Yeah. So the risk of a newborn getting GBS infection, we talked, you, you kind of mentioned like it's pretty low, but based off of your own experience, you're like, yeah, it wasn't worth the risk to me, right? Mm-hmm. And it's the same thing when we're talking about TOLAC, right? Like, okay, uterine rupture risk is pretty low, but then we have to evaluate what risk is acceptable to that individual. Absolutely. And so not treating, not treating, meaning like no uses of antibiotics, which is usually penicillin mm-hmm. um, via IV, and it's usually done about every four hours especially after rupture of membranes. The risk of serious infection, including like so serious death, is 1% to 2%. Yeah. Okay. It's small. So it's very small. But again, it's it's what risk 
are you willing to take? Some people are 100% willing and saying, I really would rather not receive mm-hmm. antibiotics. And that is okay too. And, you know, there's some, there's not a ton of evidence with like um, hemoglobin and stuff like that. Like people can, it's like a vaginal wash, you like kind of like, honestly, it's like a douche, honestly. Yeah. Sorry for saying yeah. that word, everybody, but that's what it is. <laughs> yeah, put it on up there and it like cleanses the canal, right? But so treating it, so the risk in infection with treating with antibiotics is about 0.2%. So still very low, (laughs) also very small, but still, there you go. And then some of like one thing that, and it's, it's within a small trial and it was quite a few years ago, almost 10 years ago. I think it was like seven years ago, maybe 2016. They did a small trial and they found that women that did, that were GBS positive, that took probiotics, decreased their chance by 43%. Like, so 43% of them became GBS negative by birth. Okay. Interesting. So really interesting. So probiotics, and I believe in probiotics, just not even pregnant all the time. I think it's a really good thing, especially because we, you know, there's so much in our food and everything Mm -hmm. right these days but that was kind of an interesting thing i like again like i said it's a smaller trial it was done quite a few years ago but 43 percent of them became negative by birth that's pretty high absolutely percent so knowing also that if you test positive you can retest closer to birth Mm -hmm. um because it can go away doesn't always though so don't don't think that if you get positive and you start probiotics that you're for sure not going to be positive, but know that there are things you can do, right? Or like yeah. the garlic and things like that. Um, and we'll have a blog um, in the show notes today linked about GBS and we'll have these trials and things linked as well. So you can go check them out for yourself and make the best decision for you. Yeah. I think it goes without being said too, that there's going to be risk with antibiotics as well. And so where there is risk, yes. there has to be choice. And I I made my decision, but probably hundreds of thousands of women listening to this are going to choose differently. Yeah. Yeah. And that's okay. Right? Like that's mm-hmm. one of the my favorite things about this show is we all have opinions and we all have things that we would do versus someone else, but there's no shaming in any decisions that anyone makes, right? I was actually never, never GBS positive. So I never even had to make that choice, which I'm grateful for. But a lot of people, yeah, like you said, like will say, no, no way. I don't want antibiotics because there's risk of antibiotics. But then a lot of people say, well, I'd rather have the risk of taking antibiotics than this risk too. So you just have to weigh out the pros and cons and decide what's best for you. But yeah, I just, I love your story. I love that, you know, you had a long birth, premature rupture of membranes, walking in at no dilation, you know, a less ideal cervical state. Yes. I, I should say. Adding that to my res- to my resume. Yeah. <laughs> yes. A less ideal cervical state. <laughs> with a VHAC. <laughs> um, you know, and a cook catheter and that took time and all the things. And here you are and you had a vaginal birth. I did. I did. Oh, I would do it all over again. Yes. Oh, that's a lot of people ask me that. Like, would you do it again? Because I had a really long labor mm-hmm. as well. And I'm like, yeah, yep, I totally would do it again. 100%. Yeah. 
Absolutely. So, uh, well, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing your story. Thank you for having me. It was great. Interested in sharing your VBAC? Head over to the vbaclink.com slash share to submit your story. For information on all things VBAC, including online and in-person VBAC classes, the VBAC blog, the worldwide database for VBAC doulas, and more, head over to the vbaclink.com. Congratulations on starting your journey of learning and discovery with the VBAC link.